0: You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 26. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, Wellness Insiders. I hope you're having a great week. During last episode, we talked about healthy digestion, and today I wanted to dig a little deeper and explore an interesting category of plants called bitters. If you or your loved ones suffer from indigestion, bloating, nausea, or even sugar cravings, this episode is for you. My today's guest is Guido Massey. Guido is a clinical herbalist who lives in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, he specializes in holistic Western herbalism and he draws upon many different influences. Guido has been called a botanical genius. He practices at the Burlington Herb Clinic. He's also a chief herbalist at the company for bitters and tonics called Urban Moonshine. And he's also an educator at the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism. Guida has written two books, The Wild Medicine Solution and Do-It-Yourself Bitters, Reviving the Forgotten Flavor. And by the end of this episode, uh, you leave with some incredibly practical recommendations, as well as thoughts and ideas that will expand your perception of the world around you. So thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Uh, Good morning, Guida. How are you doing?
1: Good morning, Lana. I'm doing well. Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Our previous podcast was about digestive health, and so there are a lot of elements that we will be discussing and going deeper today that will address digestive health and various other uh, elements of it. But before we begin uh, with that topic, I would love to learn a little bit more about you and share with our audience. Can you please tell us um, your journey uh, to uh, becoming a clinical herbalist, uh, how it happened, so anything that you could share with us?
1: Yeah, I think I didn't really know how good I had it when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Italy and lived, most, most, we spent most of our summers in this amazing place in the middle of the Ark of the Alps, um, the Dolomite region, just south of the Austrian border with Italy. And of course, that's the homeland of some of our favorite plants, like gentian, for example, and arnica flowers, um, which grow up above the tree line. And when I was little, we'd go on these hikes and collect things, everything from elderflower to um, arnica flowers that we would put into liniment and um, bilberries and um, mushrooms and, and just come home with this bounty from the mountains that you know, my grandmother would string up and dry the mushrooms and we'd make preparations from the berries and we'd dry the elderflowers for tisane in the winter. And I didn't really see that this was something um, that really mattered or was, or was very valuable and important to me until I, left Italy when I was about 14 um, to live in my mom's homeland, which was the middle of the Great Plains of the United States in Kansas City. So my whole family relocated and my mom and dad still go back and forth to this day, but it took me a few years to realize that I really missed these sort of wild crafting adventures that we would take during the summer. And that in Kansas City, I had traded sort of a a life that in Europe was a little more normal. You know, people don't call themselves herbalists; they just wildcraft things. Mm-hmm. Um, for the American suburban life, which was a little different, and so I immediately, um, once I realized that I missed the wildcrafting that I'd done in Italy, started to try and and bring back some of that knowledge for myself and get into researching medicinal plants. And um, honestly, I started with Michael Tierra's. Um, herbal tarot as one of my first introductions to the American herbal community. And it was neat to see how these archetypal, um, energies and patterns that are encoded in the tarot were related to herbs by Michael Tierra and the work he did in that deck. But, mm-hmm. um, that honestly was what, you know, where, where the interest in medicinal plants and wildcrafting kind of brought me back to what I had known in childhood. It was this blending of the sort of deep, Archetypal mythological threads that have been part of fairy tale and folklore for so long, and my newfound love of biochemistry and molecular biology, which really began in my high school years as a teenager, and the apparent opposition of those two ways of thinking that really finally cemented in my mind the um, idea that I wanted to be an herbalist and that was what I wanted to do in my life because one day it dawned on me that in the discipline and in the practice of herbal medicine, you have this tradition and you have this science that blend sort of fairy tale folklore and mythology with biochemistry and molecular biology and human physiology. So to have something that would speak to sort of both sides of myself, these two sides that I felt were really diametrically opposed and tearing me in two different directions be reconciled into this one sort of synergy with herbal medicine, that's what um, sort of filled me with gratitude and appreciation and um, really cemented my commitment to the art and science of herbal medicine. So when I was about 18, 19, I started traveling around the country and learning about herbal medicine, mostly from you know, random folks that were practicing or growing medicinal plants in their local communities, everywhere from Texas to Michigan um, to the American South um, East, and then my wife and I um, made it up to Vermont in 1996, and I started growing medicinal plants, and little by little, selling extracts at farmers' market. Um, about 2000, 2001, I felt maybe confident enough to start bringing people into my garden and having a cup of tea and starting to see what kind of herbs might be useful to them in their life. Um, I didn't really call that a clinical practice at that point, but um, I was able to be one of the co-founders of the Sage Mountain Free Herbal Clinic in 2001 and uh, work collaboratively with some other amazing herbalists. And that really was like when I started learning and understanding a lot more um, and being able to bounce ideas off of others um, in a collaborative practice. And um, I really haven't looked back. And so I practice at the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism from about 2007 uh, up until just a couple years ago. And then my practice now is located here in Burlington, Vermont, where I live with my wife and daughter um, at the Burlington Herb Clinic.
0: That's awesome. And so can you talk a little bit more about your practice? What is it like, what kind of, and by the way, um, part of my training was, was Rosemary Gladstar. And so I got to learn how amazing the Vermont herbal community is. And so I think that you're very fortunate to be in the middle of this. So this is kind of a mecca of herbal medicine. But can you tell us a little bit about um, what the clinic is like, how does it work and what type of patients do you see and things like that? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so we um, at the Burlington Herb Clinic are a worker-owned cooperative, so we're a collaborative clinic, Um, and again, from the early days at the Sage Mountain Free Herbal Clinic, I've really valued the ability to practice in cooperation with other folks. Um, It really is amazing to have other perspectives and other specializations um, to kind of come to a roundtable together and be able to discuss clients together, Uh, and I think it ultimately benefits um, Clients too to have multiple different perspectives on their case. I tend to um, maybe the first time I meet someone, spend an hour and a half all the way up to two hours with them, kind of going through, you know, what's on their mind and what brought them to the clinic, but then backing up a little bit and attempting to take a look at not only all the physiologic systems, but also some of the components that give me an understanding about the energetic makeup, the the particular degree of moisture and temperature in that person and in the different parts of their body, too. Um, We try to integrate that also into the person's environment, where they're living, um, what they're doing in community, how they integrate with the ecology around them, really trying to restore or deepen connection and relationship um, between the person who walks into the clinic and the community of people and plants and animals all around them. Um, Really, we come from the perspective that more connection generally leads to more health. So then we'll um, go through, you know, that, that sort of initial intake process, take an inventory of everything they're putting into their bodies um, in terms of material things, but also um, things that are less tangible, like what they do for fun or inspiration,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then come up with a series of recommendations. Um, a lot of times those are um, introduced slowly. Um, I generally find that if you try to do everything at once, it becomes very difficult to make such dramatic changes in your life. So Mm -hmm. it'll be a process of a few weeks to sometimes a few months to kind of get everything rolling um, in the way that we think is useful, and we can make some adjustments along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, Typically, I use whole plants. So I'll work um, with food sometimes. Uh, You know, the line between medicinal herbs um, and food is sometimes very... Um, fuzzy, especially if you 're talking about something like blueberry smoothie, for example, mm-hmm. is that a medicine or is it a food I think it 's both, but I try not to use um, a lot of very high dose standardized or isolated chemical constituents from plants. Um, I try to stay you know with tea with powder and maybe with some tinctures um, when we 're using medicinal plants internally. <clears throat> Once in a while, there'll be applicability for something like um, maybe a milk thistle standardized extract or a standardized extract that's rich in curcuminoids, but I really try and stay as whole plant as possible and also um, as local and as bioregional as possible. Ultimately, the goal would be for some of my clients to either be able to grow some of their herbal allies themselves or find sustainable ways to harvest them themselves. Because I really believe if they can, you know, not think of herbs as alternative to drugs that you get in a pill from the internet, but more as like living beings that you can go outside and actually grow and interact with as other living beings. It's that practice that I think is a big part of the true medicine um, that herbalism can bring. So I don't know, the clinical relationship here for us is yes, one of getting herbal products connected to people, but also getting people connected to living, thriving plants in the ecology that surrounds them. So we always try and make sure that there are at least one or two herbs that are allies that can be found locally or grown locally as well. And then the relationship can last, you know, depending on on what the goals are, anywhere from a couple of months to years. Um, And it really depends on, on what the goals are for the individual client.
0: This is such a beautiful approach, and I absolutely love this idea of using, using a whole plant, and I think that our society as a whole is has moved a little bit away from it, and so it's absolutely wonderful that you and your colleagues are trying to bring this back um, into our culture. So. Um, I know that uh, your herbal practice is just a part of what you do. There are uh, other uh, elements of your uh, herbal career. And so one of them is working for herbal companies and the other one is writing. So can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, these different uh, facets of it?
1: Yeah. Um, So first of all, over the last 20 years, um, the growth in interest in herbal products nationally has um, really been pretty rapid um, we've seen the herbal products industry from the early 90s go from sort of a still pretty fringe thing to seeing um, medicinal teas in mainstream grocery stores kind of across the board nationally and also now believe it or not um, the beginning of you know herbal tinctures being distributed in more mainstream outlets which you know is really Amazing for me to see and not something I would have expected 20 years ago. The tincture is such a bizarre thing But you know one Can of the you things tell
0: that... us what t- what tincture is forgive me just for yeah. someone that might not know
1: I mean, that's it exactly. What is the tincture? Uh, I work with this company urban moonshine, which specializes in making herbal bitters and if you think about herbal bitters that's something that people maybe have heard about or resonate with a little bit. Um, You know, most people have heard of Angostura bitters. Maybe if they haven't tasted them, they've at least seen that bizarre bottle with the um, paper label on it that's oversized on the grocery store shelves. But that's what we started with with Urban Moonshine. And that's really a tincture. It's a combination of different dried or sometimes fresh medicinal plants that are ground and steeped in alcohol usually about 50% alcohol, 50% water, for a short period of time, anywhere from a week to maybe three or four weeks, after which then the alcohol is strained out and um, it's been infused with all of the flavors and medicinal qualities of those botanicals. And then it's taken as a flavoring agent in the case of you know, bitters in, um, for example, a cocktail or a sparkling water, or for um, medicinal purposes too. And this is, for example, how people will take um, an echinacea tincture, which is just echinacea root and sometimes tops steeped in alcohol, strained, and then folks will take maybe 60 or 90 drops of that um, a few times a day. Tinctures have a couple of advantages. Um, One is that they're kind of pre-extracting the herbs so that they're very bioavailable. Um, You don't need to break through the sort of cell wall of a plant cell Um, with your digestive system, the alcohol has done that work for you already. And also it's very stable, meaning the chemistry of the plant is pretty well preserved in that alcohol. It's not going to spoil, it's not going to ferment, bacteria can't grow in it. So it makes a good way to kind of capture the medicinal activity of a plant and, and keep it locked in a solution for a good period of time. So it's something that herbalists have loved for a long time, but it's very new and different to the mainstream American who's used to seeing herbs either in tea or ground up into a capsule. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we saw in the early years of Urban Moonshine was um, because we made bitters along with a lot of other herbal tinctures, people at farmer's market would come up and, and they would recognize the bitters and they'd say, wow, like, is this kind of the stuff that you would put in a Manhattan, for example? Mm-hmm. And you say, well, yes, but do you know it's so good for your digestion too? And that began an interesting conversation. And we started to realize that there is still this thread of recognition in the American public's mind around bitters. And maybe as part of the cocktail culture, we'll see a reintroduction of herbal medicine um, into the American consciousness. And I never thought it would have come from that direction. But I think in part, at least it is, um, which is what led us to put together a little bit of a, an herbal tincture resource in this book that we put out a couple of years ago called DIY Bitters, um, which really talks about how to make your own tinctures and blend them together um, to make not only herbal bitters, but we're trying to trick people into you know, making some other medicinal products too. Um, they come from the idea of making flavorings for their cocktails and they leave as you know, budding herbalists.
0: That's awesome. And so, so I understand why bitters, but tell us a little bit about what bitters are and why they're good for you.
1: Well, I mean, bitters is really, it's a definition that's based on taste. So any tincture, and sometimes people will steep bitters in vinegar instead of in alcohol, which is fine. But any, any types of those extracts or liquids that have a bitter flavor to them, could technically be considered bitters. But I would say historically, the traditional bitters that you see um, as part of the, let's say, Italian bitter culture, where they're called Amari, right? Things like Cinar or Fernet Branca or Campari that you may have heard of, Mm -hmm. um, all the way to, you know, things like Angostura bitters or Peychaud's bitters generally have a pretty similar recipe or template to them. Um, We see herbs that are very bitter as being the sort of foundational element. Then we see some pungent or aromatic herbs, whether those are minty or sometimes there's orange and citrus flavors, um, sometimes other flavors like allspice, you know, um, or ginger that are blended with that. Um, And then finally, usually something sweet, um, whether that's straight up sugar, as is the case with some Italian amari, or some roots that have starch in them, like, for example, burdock root, that tend to soften the sharp edge of the bitter and pungent ingredients. So if you have those three legs, you've basically created the basic template of an herbal digestive bitter or an aromatic bitter. And so these preparations are taken around mealtime, before or after, and they're traditionally considered aperitifs or digestifs. And uh, that means that they're used to stimulate digestion when taken before meals, to kind of get um, all the digestive juices flowing and prepare our system for the food that's coming. With the idea that if you prepare the system, then the digestive process works more efficiently, food is broken down more effectively, and you don't see as much drama or bloating or fermentation or discomfort associated with the process of digestion and this is you know something that folks know from a traditional perspective very well but a lot of the research now that we've seen around digestive bitters and what they do in the human physiology is corroborating some of that traditional knowledge and then sometimes people will take bitters after a meal too to help with things like indigestion or heartburn Um, Or help relieve feelings of fullness. You know, we always talk about how it's nice to have a bottle of bitters at the Thanksgiving dinner table, for example. So that when you really like get through this long meal and wow, it's now like second helping of pumpkin pie and you're super full, bitters can really help give you a little bit of relief um, and um, make everything feel a little smoother going down.
0: Okay. All right. That's great. Although, uh, typically, it's not your recommendation to overeat and uh, to consume bitters just to help with the overeating, I'm assuming.
1: No. And I don't, I don't think the, the natural state of the human being is also to you know, sit down at a table and overeat. Right. But one of the things we see is that if you take something bitter and just get that flavor on the tongue a little bit before you start eating, you consume less food. And the clinical research now is bearing that out where typically 20 to 30% less food is consumed from an all-you-can-eat buffet when someone tastes something bitter before they start eating. And we think this is part of one of the major effects of the bitter flavor in the human body, which is almost a a self-protective mechanism. Most of our strong poisons particularly from the plant world, taste extremely bitter. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything from caffeine, which is not poisonous necessarily, but in large quantities can be a little toxic, all the way to our really strong poisons like strychnine or atropine from deadly nightshade, ridiculously bitter substances. So the idea is that you use something that kind of activates that protective response um, and also slows down consumption, which is what the body tries to do when it experiences bitter flavors. And I think a big part of the reason Americans might overeat when they sit down at a meal is because the meal is, by design, devoid of the bitter flavor. Because generally, the food industry knows that if there's bitterness in the food that they're selling you, you're going to eat less of it, which ultimately is going to impact their bottom line. I think on a grand industrial scale, this has led to some of the "supersize me" related problems that the American culture has been struggling with, and. I'm not saying tasting bitterness is necessarily the complete solution to that, but I think it is a part of the solution at least. And it's a traditional one, and one that um, with a little bit of attention, you might even start to enjoy um, if you can start developing a relationship with some good herbal digestive bitters.
0: But what you are saying, or what what I'm hearing, is that bitters, herbal bitters, is one component of it, but having something bitter in your food, maybe arugula salad or something similar to that, so consumption of uh, bitter-flavored foods is also something that's necessary. Am I correct?
1: I think that's actually the ultimate solution, and I think the reason we turn to digestive bitters um, in this sort of concentrated form, in a sort of a formalized way, is because most of the fruits and vegetables and roots and grains that we eat now are not nearly as bitter as they had been historically. And I mean, think about it. You know, um, my mom always used to tell me all the vitamins and good stuff in your vegetables and fruits, they're in the peel. So don't Mm -hmm. peel it, right? But if you peel even a carrot today, the peel is the most bitter part And a lot of times when people cook carrots, they peel them because they want to remove that bitterness. So we not only do that, but we've also bred our fruits and vegetables over time to have less and less of that bitterness because, you know, we don't like the flavor of it. But what we're starting to realize, just as we realize that exercise is important for a healthy human being to just have some gentle movement every day, it really seems that for the proper operating of our digestion and of our metabolism, We need the flavor of bitterness on a daily basis, just like we had for, you know, since before we were human beings as part of our diet. So not peeling your carrots, not peeling your potatoes, eating the peel with your apple, right? Those are some immediate ways to get some of that bitterness back into your life. But like you say, also making something that isn't just iceberg lettuce, but that adds some endive and some um, radicchio and maybe some arugula into your salad, right? Mm Maybe taking some roots like burdock roots and putting them in your soup instead of just carrots, right, right, adds this sort of daily dietary bitterness, which is ultimately, I think, what we need. We need this in our food and as part of our diet. But in the short term or as an enhancement to it, having some um, liquid digestive bitters is, is a little bit of a shortcut and also a little bit convenient, especially if you're traveling or if you're at a restaurant or something like that.
0: Right. And so when you're, if you are taking the digestive bitters, this is typically, so you said you do it either before meal or after meal. And so before meal, five to 10 minutes, is that the, the typical recommendation?
1: Traditionally, yes, five to 10 minutes before meals so that you can stimulate those bitter taste receptors on your tongue, and then, you know, the same saliva that you feel when you taste something bitter, you know, it immediately increases the amount of juices in your mouth, but that's happening throughout your digestion as well, because the body's like, hey, wait a second, something's happening here, let's get all of our juices flowing. So doing it five to 10 meals before, again, primes your digestion so that when the food enters your system, you're breaking it down completely and effectively. But, um, based on some research that we've seen really in the last three, four years, even if you don't take it five to 10, meals, five to 10 minutes before your meal, um, having your bitters as part of your meal or in the middle of your meal still helps with digestive function. So if you forgot to take them, it's not too late. Take it with the first few bites or even in the middle. Um, or even afterwards. And the way I I try to remember whether to take before or after is, I usually suggest that folks take bitters before a meal if a lot of their symptoms are further down, like irregular bowel habits or a lot of gas and bloating um, around the area of the belly button, you know, the the Mm -hmm. abdominal area. Um, Take your bitters beforehand so that your food doesn't ferment, so that everything moves through really well. If your symptoms tend to be after, um, you know, upper, digestion, like fullness and heartburn after a meal, um, indigestion, it's sort of above your um, navel in the area of the stomach, then take your bitters after a meal, and they'll relax, they'll help equalize pressure, dispel gas and bloating, and relieve heartburn.
0: That's a wonderful recommendation. Thank you. Um, So I want to take you back to something that you mentioned earlier. You were talking about uh, uh, do-it-yourself bitters or just a way of blending bitters. So where there are three legs uh, to the stool. And so one thing that um, I want to ask you is, uh, first of all, Uh, why is it not okay to just use something that's extremely bitter by itself long term so that's one and then the other one is can you talk a little bit about this um, idea of herbal blends and what makes them superior and how can what makes a nice formula and how can uh, a beginner start understanding how plants are combined
1: yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot of richness in that question for sure, um, and we could spend a lot of time on it, but let me see if I can summarize. Sure. Um, first of all, and this is a concept that I think has been really well articulated in the herbal tradition of China in traditional Chinese medicine, the idea of just taking something extremely bitter, like gentian root, for example, which is probably the most bitter plant that we know of, um, and doing it, as I would say, unopposed or just by itself for long periods of time, might actually lead to a little bit of stagnation in the digestive system.
0: And what, so, what does stagnation mean? Yeah,
1: so what do I mean by that? So one of the things that the bitter taste does, and this is part of this idea of protecting and also ensuring optimal breakdown of everything we put into our mouths, is that it slows down the movement of food in the upper part of the digestion, meaning the stomach in particular. And it does this um, really by helping to keep the valves at the bottom of the throat and at the other end of the stomach, closed up. There's these two muscular valves at either end of the stomach because, of course, the stomach is a bag of juice and acid where the food kind of sits and really gets churned and broken down. And we don't want that food to spill either up into our throat or down into the absorptive part of the intestine before it's ready. So what bitters seem to be able to do is help keep the food in the stomach a little longer by keeping those valves closed and slowing the rate of movement in the upper part of the digestion. This is also part of how they reduce overconsumption of food, because if you keep things in the stomach, you feel full and satisfied more easily and more readily. But if you're just taking um, bitters by themselves, Over time, they can actually slow that movement down even further, particularly in folks who are older, maybe in their 80s or older than that, um, who already maybe have a little bit of less motility in their digestive system. Taking a bitter herb like gentian all by itself can make things slow down so much that the food just kind of sits there. And that's what I mean by stagnation. And when it sits there, it can almost rot, for lack of a better way of describing it, and lead to other feelings of discomfort. <clears throat> so what herbalists have figured out, um, again, for, and known for a really long time, um, is that you have to add something that's a little bit warming and relaxing and spicy to that bitter, which traditionally has always been considered cold and cooling, in order to create a balanced formula that is safe to use for a long period of time. So think about um, ginger, for example. As sort of a really good example of something that is the opposite of a bitter root like gentian. Gentian is bitter, ginger is warm and spicy. And what do we use ginger for? We use it for motion sickness, we use it for nausea, whether that nausea is associated with motion or um, whether it's associated with morning sickness of pregnancy, for example. Ginger is just so good at relieving the symptoms of nausea. And part of the reason for why it does that, is because it actually does the opposite of what the bitters do. It helps move things out of the stomach and relax those valves and open things up so that food doesn't sit in the stomach but actually moves along. So taking a big pile of ginger when you feel heartburn, that's not gonna feel too good, right? Mm-hmm. Because it may overly relax the valve. but. Right in just the right amount, it acts as a great counterbalance to the bitter flavor to make sure that your food isn't stagnating in the upper part of the GI tract. Now you want the bitter flavor to predominate, but having a little bit of that warmth from orange peel or ginger or fennel seed or something like that um, does really a great job at um, counterbalancing the long-term potential negative effects of just pure bitterness all by itself. Now, when you're talking about formulation in general, and and that's a formulation concept that I just outlined, right? You know, you want to take the bitter and you want to merge it with something warming and spicy. You can take a couple of approaches. One is to just look for a plant that has both of those things together. Mm -hmm. Angelica root, for example, has a good amount of bitterness, but also has warmth and spice. And the herbalists who believe in what's called the Simplers tradition, which says, really, you know, there is a plant for you. And just that plant is going to hit everything that you need. Right. They would say that um, formulation is the tool of someone who doesn't know enough plants to mm-hmm. be able to find that specific one that is correct. And to a certain extent, I agree. But I guess that means that you know I don't um, know enough plants because sometimes I just am at odds to try and find that exact one that is perfect for the person. And so I try to approximate that by blending a few plants that I know really well together. So while Angelica root has bitterness, but also warmth and spice, so it makes a great, simple by itself as a digestive bitter, most of the time what we do is we'll blend um, herbs together to attempt to accomplish a balanced effect. (coughs) Excuse me. So, um, for example, we'll try to balance a formula energetically. What does that mean? It means that if you've got an herb that's considered very moist and gloopy, like slippery elm or marshmallow root, you might balance it out with something that is a little more um, sort of pungent and warming, like ginger, for example. If you have an herb that is very dry and drying, um, like for instance, um, agrimony, or an herb that is rich in tannins, like green tea, you may wanna mix it with something that has a little bit of um, moisture or slipperiness to it, like marshmallow root, that could help make the mouth feel a little bit better. um, So the formula doesn't feel super drying, right? Also, as we discussed with the bitters, if you've got something that is really um, cooling like gentian root, you wanna mix it with something that is warming like angelica. Also, if you have um, like a tea blend that you're making and it has a lot of warmth and spice to it, sometimes adding a little bit of cooling spearmint or cooling peppermint just brings that whole blend together and makes it feel more alive and less kind of pointing in one direction from a flavor perspective.
0: Okay.
1: So the energetic piece merges over to the flavor piece a little bit, where, where we don't necessarily want any particular one flavor to predominate in a formula, especially if we're trying to make something that is not for one individual, but something we might want to, for example, give to all the members of our family as a holiday gift. We want to kind of blend the flavors out a little bit so that there's not one thing that sticks out. And of course, this translates ultimately to um, physiologic effects. We don't necessarily want formulas that are way, 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 way too stimulating, for instance. Let me give you an example. Um, A lot of times... Back when we could use this herb Mahuang, which is Ephedra Sinica, it's been banned in North America um, because of its potential toxicity when used all by itself. Mm -hmm. But when used in 5%, 10% of a formula for upper respiratory tract congestion in short term, in the context of, let's say, a cold, It mixes so well with herbs like licorice and red clover and just gently opens the airways. You would never want to use ephedra all by itself. It would be way too stimulating. You'd get wired, and if you have high blood pressure, it's completely contraindicated, but in trace amounts, blended into a formula for a cold, for instance, it gives a little bit of relief and just feels great. So it's all those types of ideas of sort of the synergy of the chemistry, the synergy of the physiologic effects where no one physiologic effect predominates, then the flavor and the temperature and moisture of a formula that all come into consideration when we're trying to blend herbs together, um, either for an individual or in an herbal product, for example.
0: That's wonderful. And so it sounds like balance and synergy are two predominant thing that you are talking about. So thank you. Um, I know that in your book, The Wild Medicine Solution and Do-It-Yourself Bitters, Reviving the Forgotten Flavor. So part of uh, intent for the book was to actually give some suggestions of uh, formulas that work very well. Am I correct?
1: Yeah, particularly you see that in the DIY do-it-yourself bitters. Um, we're trying to bring some of those formulation principles out. And I talk about some of the general ideas at the beginning of the book, but then we give a lot of examples. Um, one of the things that I think, however, is really important is to craft a formula really well, you need to know what all the individual players are. Mm-hmm. So I do really suggest that the aspiring herbalist or mixologist taste each plant extract or each plant by itself first. It's hard to get to know your formulas if you steep all the herbs together and don't get an appreciation for them individually. But once you do get an appreciation for them individually, then you have almost unlimited possibilities in terms of how to combine them, play with them, and create a blend that is truly unique and truly your own. In the wild medicine solution, I go a little more into the sort of technical details and the pharmacology of both bitter and aromatic herbs that might be used um, in formulating, let's say, a, a home digestive bitters. Um, but in DIY bitters, we stay a little more practical and talk about um, some of the recipes themselves.
0: That's great, thank you. So we talked quite a bit about bitters today, but I know that you have uh, a lot of uh, varied interests. And so some of the uh, information that I have been uh, looking at um, that you have shared either on your social media and various other places, talk about uh, flavonoids and uh, various uh, other plants. What are your current interests?
1: Well, I mean, Lana, one of the things that I think keeps me coming back over and over again to herbal medicine is, is this idea that's almost, it's almost mystical or spiritual for me. It's this idea that we are not really individuals. Our consciousness isn't enclosed in our brains, in our skulls. Our consciousness is broader than us as single beings, and we're embedded in a larger organism, whether that's a city or whether that's a bioregion that we live in, right, like the Champlain Valley here. If we're willing to accept the idea that planet Earth is alive, that historically radical hypothesis that Lynn Margulis and James Lovelock came up with in the 70s. that The planet is actually a living being, right? If we're willing to accept that, then I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that our, you know, local bioregions or even our backyard is a living being too. And we're organs in that living being. We're participants. We're the gut flora of the ecology in which we live. And then the question to me is always, how does that ecology keep all of its organs, keep its gut flora working and living and thriving harmoniously within it. And one of the ways I think it does it is through the production of this chemistry, particularly polyphenols right, that come from the botanical world, mm-hmm. polysaccharides that come from the mushroom world, and when we eat these chemicals, we're not just nourishing ourselves with macronutrients, but we're exposing so ourselves to the threads of information, to essentially eco hormones that the ecology uses to knit all of the living beings together that participate in its own well being and its own survival and its own sustainability. So, what herbalists do by sort of connecting human beings back to plants, connecting human beings to mushrooms, and ensuring that we, you know, participate in this dance is to really reconnect the ecology, reconnect us to the ecology in a way that is mindful and that is real. And so I've really been very focused on that perspective, which is sort of a, I don't know, eco-sustainability perspective. And my my thought or the faith that drives me is that we're going to have a lot harder time being comfortable with spilling pesticides and chemicals like herbicides into our water supply or spilling oil into the Gulf of Mexico, if we understand that we are embedded in an ecology that is attempting to speak to us through eco-hormones all the time. And the analogy I use is the analogy of the dandelion in the suburban lawn, right, Mm -hmm. which for so many years people have been spraying herbicides on. And those herbicides get into our water supply and they have endocrine disrupting effects and they have incredibly disruptive effects on birds and pollinators. And yet at the same time, the dandelion is there trying to tell us, hey, I am the solution to your digestive problems that you've been taking Tums and Zantac for every night. And then you come out in the morning and spray me with Roundup. There's this incredible disconnect. And if an herbalist can help folks make the, the connection between dandelion as a source of well-being for their digestion and then realize that when you let the dandelion thrive in your yard and you harvest it and you make bitters with it, now you're not poisoning our water supply anymore. That's the kind of stuff that really keeps me excited. Now, getting into the specifics of it, particularly with polyphenols like bioflavonoids, these are some of the um, pigments that make blueberries blue or Mm -hmm. apples red um, or hawthorn berries red. Um, These pigments that are signals of ripeness, right, that the plants make to tell us when the fruit is ready to eat and the seed is mature for spreading are also some of the most powerful medicines that I think we have ever discovered. And they're not powerful in the sense that they have immediate dramatic effects, like some of the drugs that you might see in a pharmacy they're powerful because of their mechanism of action and how profound and deep it is in every cell of our bodies. So most of the drugs we know in modern technological pharmacy tend to act on what we call cell surface receptors. Um, These are parts of our cell that are um, on the outer membrane of the cell and that when they're stimulated, immediately generate very dramatic responses. A great example of this is the human hormone adrenaline which hits a cell surface receptor and causes, as everyone knows, really dramatic effects. You know, We feel very wide awake, our eyes open up, our heart rate gets going, our blood pressure increases. These are the dramatic immediate effects of a substance that stimulates a cell surface receptor. But polyphenols from plants like the flavonoid pigments in berries, they work differently. Instead of working on a cell surface and having these immediate dramatic effects, they get into the depths of the cell and actually alter the way our cell reads the genes, the information that's encoded in our DNA, and how on a moment-to-moment basis, it chooses what parts of the genome are actually translated into form and translated into substance. So this takes a lot of time, right? You have to go from DNA to RNA, eventually to protein, then those proteins need to actually do things in the cell. That takes a lot of time, but the change is much more profound. Because rather than just stimulating a drug-like reaction in a very superficial way, you're getting into the actual expression of the physical form of the human being. And a lot of the things like cardiovascular disease and cancer that we see are actually connected to imbalances or um, defects in that process of gene expression, that process of translating genetics into form that we see the polyphenols can regulate in such a beautiful and profound way. So just as a lot of our digestive and metabolic dysfunctions, I feel, are due to the absence of the bitter flavor in our life, a lot of our cardiovascular and um, sort of immune-related, cancer-related dysfunctions are also connected to an absence of polyphenols in our life. And if we were to include more deeply pigmented berries on a daily basis as part of our diet, which again takes me right back to my hikes in the mountains with my dad and my aunts and grandma. If we could get these berries into our life on a daily basis, I think we would see better health in our heart, better health in our blood vessels, and we would be able to sort of start making inroads on this sort of chronic cardiovascular disease epidemic, which is still the number one killer in Western societies today
0: you brought it back so beautifully to the your childhood and to our roots and this is what ultimately when you st- when we actually start thinking holistically then things change in our perception and so thank you so much for that um You have talked about a variety of different uh, topics today. And so uh, my next question will ask you a little bit about some of your favorite resources and some of the things that you have enjoyed exploring and something that you might be able to recommend to someone who is listening to us today. So it could be something about bitters, herbs in general, maybe bioflavonoids. So anything that really stuck with you and uh, anything that really resonated with you.
1: Yeah. um, So at this point, I tend to look at um, a lot of research. And I know that this is probably not the most interesting or best place to start. The research that I've been looking at right now is because I'm so interested in plant constituents being a bridge between different pieces of the ecology, I'm actually looking at the research that entomologists have been doing around how plants produce compounds to alter their relationship to browsers, for example. Um, So I've been sort of exploring the botany piece quite a bit, um, and there's some amazing stuff that's happening. But this is a little more esoteric probably than your average person would want to start with. So my recommendation would be um, to begin with books that look at um, and can inspire your appreciation for the integrated nature of our ecology. And you know, right off the top of the list, I would put Anything by Mary Oliver. And I know that we think of her generally as um, a poet and an essayist about um, sort of nature in general, but her ability to, I don't know, bring into focus how embedded we are in nature and how nature really is the source of life for us is something that can every day just inspire you to go back out there to the garden and back out there to the forest. And I think that's really what keeps us going. So having that as sort of a driver, um, I think is really important. Then after that, um, I've been, you know, really into books that um, take us a little further in exploring the interconnections um, and, and the ways that plants or a plant-centric view of nature, let's say. Um, So one book is called What a Plant Knows, um, which came out just recently and really talks about the way the plant senses the world around um, and participates with other plants and participates with other animals. Um, The other book that I think takes that same perspective, um, rather than looking at plants, looks more at trees. It's called the, um, I think it's called The um, Hidden Life of Trees and it was written by an arborist um, from Germany, and again, a really amazing perspective about sort of how trees raise their young, and how they live in community and forests, and really how sophisticated the plant world is. Um, So I think if you're beginning to pursue herbal, arts and sciences as a discipline and as a passion. Getting grounded in that sort of plant-centric perspective rather than the human-centric perspective is really important. And Mary Oliver and some of these botany books really do it for me. But then as ways to sort of begin your journey of how to actually start thinking about medicinal plants as, as um, components in your daily life, um, my suggestion would be to look at some of the work of Rosemary Gladstar. Mm -hmm. some really amazing practical stuff in her family herbal, for example, Um, and then also the work of David Hoffman, whose new holistic herbal is a classic and really good introduction to some of the basic preparations um, and some of the basic medicinal plants, you know, let's call them the top 40, that everyone should know
0: and get to know. Thank you so much, Guida. So... As our time comes to an end, I want to ask you a couple of additional questions. So one of them is going to be, is there something that uh, you want this audience to know that we perhaps did not discuss? And then my second question is, how uh, is someone who is listening to this would be able to learn more from you and about you?
1: Great. Um, So one of the things we didn't discuss, and I don't know if it's that talked about honestly in the herb world in general, is that yes, we've seen a huge rise in popularity in medicinal plant use in general, um, but there. I just want um, your listeners to remember that there's consequences to that. Those consequences are twofold. One, as we start to see sort of mainstream media sites on the internet um, really popularize the use of herbs as tonics on a daily basis as part of this sort of modern green lifestyle, Okay, that's, that's interesting and great, but we have to be really careful to remember that herbal medicine is a very sort of diverse and decentralized discipline. And it doesn't really lend itself well to some of the things I was talking about way at the beginning, you know, standardization and isolation. like. We've gone down that road and we've created pharmaceuticals and that's great, but let's keep herbal medicine as its own thing that looks at these whole plants that we go out into the world and actually get into relationship with. And to me, what that means is becoming aware that the herbal products market in the United States is wildly diverse. And chances are that wherever you're listening to this, there's an herbalist who lives pretty close nearby and who knows the botanicals that grow where you live, and who is making teas and maybe tinctures out of those botanicals. And rather than going to the internet or going to a big chain natural food store to get your herbs, think about trying to find the herbalists that live close to you, getting to know them, because again, the biggest gift that herbalism has to offer isn't the plants itself, but it's this reintegration into the local community of your local ecology and the local plant people that live next to you. So think about that. And it's, it's really a political act, right? Because it's saying, let's decentralize, let's not aggregate. And capitalism tends to tell us, let's aggregate. Decentralization is different, but it really is the way of nature. And I think the way we develop really strong communities is by thinking that way. Right, so as you're getting to know medicinal plants, try to get to know the herbalists that live in your local area. They sometimes are a little shy and hard to find, but I don't think it will take too much effort to find them. So that's maybe one thing we haven't thought about. Part and parcel with that, and I just want to mention it, is that we should also think about the sustainability of the plants we use. And we've seen this with some plants like ginseng, for example, or, or golden seal. These plants that many people have heard of and that tend to be very popular, they're actually pressured in the wild now. And the idea of using a wild American ginseng preparation to me is, is very troubling because our old 90-year-old, 100-year-old American ginseng plants that have lived in the woods for so long, they're really under significant pressure. And so I would encourage you, um, if you're serious about this and into medicinal plants, to look into the work of this organization called United Plant Savers, which really attempts to kind of monitor the populations of endangered medicinal plants and alter the choices that the industry makes in formulation to avoid the use of these plants that are pressured in the wild or to choose certified organic sources for those plants instead of wild sources. So that's sort of the maybe political piece that we didn't talk about a lot, but that I think is important to remember um, when you're thinking about herbal medicine. And then in terms of ways to sort of follow a little more kind of what's exciting me and what I write about from time to time, you know, when I get excited about something, I'll often put out a blog post and and try to share some of the research I've been doing. Um, You can either follow me through um, Twitter. Um, My Twitter handle is just simply herbalist. So um, you can find me there or through um, the blog at urbanmoonshine.com. From time to time, I'll put out science updates that get kind of into the depths of how medicinal plants work, how bitters work in the body. Um, But also, I do like to bring in um, ideas around mythology and folklore and these sort of, if you think about fairy tales, almost every fairy tale has a plant in it somewhere, right? So that to me has been endlessly fascinating, and, and I'll try to bring that stuff back up to the fore or look at old myths like the fairy tale of Red Riding Hood um, in a new and different light. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of stuff, a lot of times you can find it through the Urban Moonshine blog at urbanmoonshine.com. Um, I'll tend to repost all of that through Twitter, um, which once in a while I'll use um, through um, twitter.com herbalist, which is my page there.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you. Guido, this was most fascinating. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your insight and your wisdom. Thank you.
1: Lana. it was my pleasure. Um, thanks for doing this great work and um, thank you to your listeners for their time.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and this conversation with Guido Um all the uh, links and all the resources mentioned during this interview, as well as quick guide of the benefits of bitters that I have created for you based on our conversation with Guida can be found in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com 26. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcasts. This is the best way to help others to learn more and to learn about the Wellness Insider Network. It also helps to bring wonderful guests like Guida to join us here. This episode is proudly brought to you by Herbstock. Herbstock is a grassroots Boston based herbal event and organization it hosts classes on herbal and holistic health topics offers urban plant walks and brings together herbal crafters from all over new england this year's main event is on june 2nd and 3rd in somerville massachusetts please check out the link in the show notes for more information at last thanks again for being here i really appreciate you Be smart, be healthy, be you.